0: Hey, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to the Old Testament book of Esther. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we have been going through this book. If this is your first week here and you're saying, where is Esther? Go kind of in the middle, you'll see Psalms and flip back to your left. And you will find Esther chapter 5 is where we will be starting today. This has been an intriguing story written in Scripture With a series that we have entitled uh, Hidden, Not Hiding. And um, whether it is in national events or just what's going on in the world, or maybe even in your own personal life, there are times when you ask the question where is God? And you keep thinking that maybe God is hiding somewhere and that uh, God is really not wanting to listen to your pleas or, or the things that you see that are going wrong. Where is he in all of this? And what we discover in this book and throughout Scripture is that God may be hidden, but he's not hiding he's always behind the scenes and he's, he's moving the pieces around so that he will receive the greatest glory and also in moving these pieces around for your greater good. And it doesn't always look like that and from our view it seems like that God is just out somewhere and he's not even caring what's going on while at the same time all that is going on he is there and he's moving things around to give his greater glory and also for our good. And we see this perfect in this book of Esther. It's what we call God's providence. And the book of Esther, just a real quick summary is that it's in Persia the kingdom uh, the empire the Persian empire there's a king by the name of Xerxes and they have taken over uh, a great part of the world that their empire goes from like Ethiopia all the way to India and they've taken over the Jews and the, and some of the Jews have gone back to Jerusalem others have stayed there uh, in Persia and in even in the city Susa which is the main city there. And Xerxes was looking for a new queen and they had this beauty contest throughout all the land. And the one that won was a girl by the name of Esther. And Esther was a Jewish orphan. Her, her, uh, grandparents or those before her had been taken from Jerusalem, had been placed there in Susa. Her parents died when she was young. And so her cousin by the name, a man by the name of Mordecai helped raise her. But as she got in this contest, he said, don't tell anybody that, that you're Jewish. Just kind of hold on to that. Well, when it all came down, the king selected her. She found favor in his eyes. And so all of a sudden she becomes the queen. So while she's the queen over about the next five years, uh, her cousin Mordecai, she's able to get him a position there, working in the king's gates, and and with all that's happening there, with all the uh, the transactions and things happening in the in palace work, and so things seem to be going good. She's the queen. Mordecai's got a good place of work, but then we get introduced to the second in command. His name was Haman. And Haman was a very, very bad man. And, uh, Haman was one who was, who was evil. Uh, he was wrapped up in his own pride, but he was the number two guy. And they put a ruling that, that whenever he came walking into the office, everybody would bow down to him. And that's just kind of to show, you know, his greatness and their respect for him. But everybody bowed down but one man, and that was Mordecai. And there was no way he was going to give glory to a man in which that glory should be given to God. So I shouldn't bow down, down to you. And so when word got to Haman, he went and next time he walked through, sure enough he noticed that Mordecai didn't bow down, and he got pretty hot about it and got upset. Turned out there had been a feud between the Jews and uh his background, uh, his descendants, for over a thousand years. And uh he just got all upset and said, tell you what. Let's come up with an edict, not only to take out Mordecai, but take out all the Jews and all the provinces. Over the 127 provinces will take out all the Jews. And he put together this edict, and in it, he didn't name the Jews, and he took it to the king, and he says, there are some people, there's a group of people who don't follow our rules, and this is causing some trouble. So I think the best thing to do is just wipe them all out. And so the king said... That's, that sounds like a good idea. And then Haman says, and I'll also put a whole lot of money into the treasury that'll make it even more um, palatable. So the king said, fine, gave him his ring, the signet ring, which is once you put that on a document, it means it's law. And, and he puts this edict out and he sends it out. And he says, 11 months from now, all the Jews will be destroyed, killed and annihilated. Have 11 months. Well, when word got out, got out. Mordecai found out about it. He got in sackcloth and ashes. He was mourning. And uh, the queen, she sent him some clothes. Couldn't understand why he was mourning. He comes back and he says, hey, it's not just a dress thing. This is things, thing, something that are pretty serious. And uh, through one of her messengers, he gave her a message. And it was that this plan is that all the Jews will be killed. And you need to go to the king because you're the most powerful woman here. And you're the queen. She came back. She said, hey, the king hadn't seen me in 30 days. Uh, You can't go in unless you get an invitation, so I really can't help you. Mordecai came back, and he said, listen, you're going to die one way or the other, because when they kill all the Jews, you're a Jew. And uh, maybe God has placed you in this position for such a time as this. And once she got hit with that, she sent a note back and said, we're going to pray and fast for three days. We'll pray and fast for three days, and at the end of that third day, I'm going to go to the king. And you, ever, you could never go to the king unless he invited you. And if you ever showed up in front of the king and he didn't invite you, he could kill you. So they prayed. They fasted three days later. She got dolled up, dressed up, looking good. She walked around, and uh, the king saw her, and he extended the scepter and said, come on in. And when she came in, she said, I want you to do me a favor. He says, what is that? She said, I'm going to make a request of you, but the first thing is I want to have a feast. And it's just going to be you and Haman and myself. He says, that's great. They invite Haman, the king. They come, they have a feast. And at the end of the feast, the king looks to Esther and says, what's your request? And her request was, let's have another feast. And then I'll tell you what it is. So he says, okay, we'll do that. We'll have another feast over there. And we always wonder, why was she holding it off? And I told you last week, the reason she was holding off is because the timing just wasn't right they had prayed they'd fasted and in the prayer and fasting naturally you're asking for wisdom and for God to to be clear and what his timing and what his will is and you can just look into scripture and feel like that that she just felt this uneasiness this the this thing that this is just not right I got to wait one more day and so she waited one more day and this is where we pick up the story and in Esther chapter five if you start looking in verses start in the ninth verse it says and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart oh, he was thrilled he just had this meal with the king and the queen he went out joyfully and he's walking out getting ready to go home and he's seeing all his little servants and then the one guy he sees is Mordecai and Mordecai it said he didn't bow he didn't even tremble he wasn't even scared of the man And guess what it did? He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Man, it just chapped him. So he goes home and he brings his best friends in along with his wife and he just begins to do kind of a brag feast or so. Look over here. Verse 10, it says, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home and he sent, uh, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Jerush. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Gag me with a spoon. Uh, Who wants to sit there and let But these are friends. They know him. And they're sitting there just eating this up. Yeah, he's got the greatest kids, they're all on the honor roll. Everyone's a starter on the on the ball team. They made everything they tried out for. He's gotten all his promotions, got the dream house, uh he's got everything. You know, he's got the newest chariot. And I mean, it just you name it. This guy's just bragging on and on about all the great stuff he's got. Really how good his life is. And hey, he's like number two in command. And it was a big dinner, and out of all the kingdom, the only three people were there, me, the king, and the queen. Yeah. And so, I mean, he's right on this riding high. And then, look what he says in verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. He's got a pretty good bit going for him. As I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So all these great things that I've got, they mean nothing to me. Because one man refuses to stroke my ego. One man refuses to bow down to me and because of that it has just taken all the joy out of my life well how do you solve that well listen to his wife and his friends then his wife jeres and all his friends said to him well let a gallows 50 cubits high thats 75 feet be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. They said, I tell you how you can solve that problem. Here on your property, and you got a lot of property, you got a big house over here, we're going to set up a gallows 75 feet tall. Now, most people believe that he didn't build a seven-and-a-half-story uh, gallows, but that he, there was probably a hill. And then they put the gallows up there, and if went from the bottom to the top, it's 75 feet. So everybody could see this. And during those days, it was not so much gallows like we know to where they would hang someone. It's where they would impale somebody. So they can't take their body and put them on a stake and impale them. Okay, I've got some pictures. Uh, no, okay. But... It's it's this impaling uh, that takes place. So they were going to put it up 75, 75 feet high. And he says, that makes good sense. Let's get the people out and let's go build that. Now, if I can just just interrupt this message for just a moment and tell you, the, the most dangerous trifecta just took place with him. Pride, anger, bad counsel. You put your pride with anger and you get bad counsel, it's going to result in bad results. Okay? Now, there is no one in his life that would ever tell him no. There was no one in his life that would step up and say, whoa, big fella, let's just slow down over here. Don't let pride start running away with you over here. But you see, he didn't. What he did was he surrounded himself with the yes men that just loved to hear his stories of how great he was. And then when they came up with this prideful idea of putting these gallows over there, they they recommended it. I mean, they, they took it to a whole new level where wouldn't it have been nice if somebody had sort of stepped in and said, hey, let's just talk through this thing. And you can see later in the story, it could have resulted in some differences for him. But all the pride all the anger, all the bad counsel, they came together and they said, go to work early in the morning, go tell the king that you want Mordecai killed. And guess what? Once you've had him impaled on the gallows, you can go to the feast and just enjoy your meal with the king and with the queen. Okay. So now you go to chapter six. I named this, uh, I entitled this sermon, Providence, Power, and Peripity. Now, most of you that walked in did not know the word peripety. And, um, I didn't either until I, I, did some research here. So I want to tell you what peripety is. You'll see the uh, definition of it. It is a literary term that refers to a sudden turn of events or an unexpected reversal. It is what we would call turning the tables. A literary return, a literary term that refers to a sudden turn of events or there is this unexpected reversal. It is a turning the tables. You just saw everything heading in one direction, and then all of a sudden, the tables got turned and went in a completely opposite direction. I want you to keep this in mind, because this is going to play out through the next two chapters. And the pivot point of this peripety is found in verse one. It says, and on that night, the king could not sleep. A sleepless night for the king Turns everything around. It's the beginning of the reversal. And it says, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now, if you can go back to uh, a couple of sermons ago, Mordecai, who was working there at the gate, overheard two of the guards who guarded the private quarters of the king, plotting to kill the king. He got word back to Esther, who in turn told the king and said, there's a plot to take your life. King found out about it through her. They took those two guys, impaled them. That's They like to do that. Impaled those two guys. And then all of a sudden, Mordecai is a hero because he's the one that uncovered the plot. And during those days, whenever someone would do something good for the king, the king would then honor them. And uh, and the king was always worried about people wanting people to have their back. So he would always honor those who did these things. So they wrote everything they could in like a book of chronicles. They recorded everything. And so when the king couldn't sleep at night, he says, hey, let's just pull out that book and just read it. And so the guy turns to a page. and, And the page he turned to was the one that had the day's events of when Mordecai had told him about that plot. And so as they read that to him, and the king looked up and he says, oh, yeah, I remember that. So what did we ever do for Mordecai? And they said, nothing. You, you didn't do anything for him. Well, this is terrible because he knows he needs to do something about it. So he's getting ready to take the next steps. So look what he says in verse 5. And then, excuse me, verse 4. And it says, and the king said, who is in the court? Now, who's out there? You know, who's outside the office over here? And he says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come on in. Haman, he was there early. Why was he there early? So he could get his permission to kill Mordecai so he could go and pale him over there so he could go to the feast and enjoy the feast. So he shows up early because his wife and his friends told him to do this. So he's there early. He's the first guy in the court. So he calls him and says, Haman, come on in. Okay, so he calls him in. And as he comes in, look what he says, verse six. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? I just got you one question. What should the king do in whom the king delights? How should he honor this man? Now here's where the pride begins to seep on up. Because he says, so when Haman heard this, he said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So he didn't ask a question. He didn't ask who, what did they do? Because that'd be uncomfortable to sit there and say, well, it's you. Well, you know, so he just goes right in and he comes up with this great idea. And he says, um, and Haman said to the king, now he had to think about this. Because it's not like you can give him a promotion. He's number two in the land. It's not like you give him a lot of money. Apparently, he's got a lot of money. The only thing he could really desire is to have that same power and prestige as the king. And so that's what he suggests. And he says, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden And on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city. Proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Doesn't that sound good? He is loving this. I mean, you know, to know that you would be wearing the same crown that sat on the king's head, same horse, king rides, same robes that he's got. I mean, there's a dignity, there's a prestige that goes with all of this. And then to have one of the noble officials start going through, and not only does he walk him with the horse, but now he proclaims, for everyone who does good to the king, this is how the king will honor him. Man, that sounds like a really good day. I mean, Haman is saying to himself, "When I woke up this morning, I thought this was going to be a good day. I'm going to impale Mordecai, I'm going to the feast with the king, the queen, and just me. Life doesn't get any better. And yet it does, because now the king is saying, "I want to go over and above." I want you wear all this stuff. And we're going to walk and parade you through town. And everybody's going to say how great and wonderful you are. And then your friends, you're going to call them back together tonight. And they're going to just be lapping this stuff up. He said, like, What did the robe feel like? Well, it felt pretty good. I think it's my, my size. Could be me one day. Yeah. How'd the crown fit on your head? How'd that steed ride? Oh, God, he's fired up. This is so good. But this is a peripety. That means... There's getting ready to be a sudden reversal of fortunes that no one saw coming. And so he comes in verse 10, and this is what the king says. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, yes, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, whoa, who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Whoa, this is great. Uh, I've made a list of things I want to do when I get to heaven, and one of them is the video of this meeting. Um, on that, and, you know, I just, and I want the camera, and I hope Ethan will have had it set. So good is that the camera would be faced right on uh, Ethan's uh, on Hayman's sorry on Haman's face, so you can see the response that, that he gets from this. And and now here's what's great about script. The storyteller is incredible. The way they've written this. Verse eleven. So Haman took the robes and the horse. And what does your scripture say? He dressed Mordecai. Oh, he's the guy's got to put the robe on him. He's the guy's got to put the crown on him. Who knows? Maybe he's the one that helped him up on the horse uh, over there. And then it says, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he didn't use a whole lot of excitement in his voice when he said this. I think it was kind of more of a mumbling. This is who the king delights to honor over there. Well, as he's walking through the town, do you not think that the people that don't like Haman, and I'm just going to give you a hint anybody who's arrogant, prideful, gets angry, and takes bad counsel, they've got people that don't like them, all right? And a lot of folks that probably don't like him, and they are ripping a gut laughing right here. That How can this be that Mordecai is sitting up on the horse above Haman, the man he will not bow down to, and he's walking him through town telling how great he is? Now, what's interesting is after this, you just love Mordecai. Guess what he does? He goes right back to work. It says, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He went right back to the office. Uh, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, to go back to the office after lunch? hey, you're in a little late today. Yeah, I forgot to send in that half-day vacation request. So what were you doing? Well, I was wearing a king's robe, king's crown, riding on the king's horse, being honored. Okay, all right, we'll give you the half-day off. That's good, all right. But Haman, he hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. This is not the way he saw this happening. And then Haman told his wife, Jeresh, and all his friends. So now they all come, To see, hey, how's the day gone? And it says, then his wise men and his wife Juresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now what the wife is saying is that because you tried to take down Mordecai and because of the position he has now, I'm getting ready to tell you, there's no hope for you well, thank you, honey. Um, where were you about like maybe 18 hours ago when you were standing in line saying, build the gallows, build the gallows, go into work early. It's the thing you need to do. Thank you. All right. Uh, we're going to do this when we talk about marriage. We're going to get into that particular passage. But it was not only his wife, but his friends, these wise men, all of them had counseled him to do this. And now every one of them is going... I probably want a good idea you think you think I want a good idea and so what's interesting in this story is as he is getting hit with all this bad news and getting their interpretation of it he doesn't have time to, to even put together strategy because look what it says in verse 14 and while they were yet talking with him the king's eunuchs arrived hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared hey it's time to go let's go let's go but but boom Now he's sitting at the feast, and you get there in chapter 7. Again, I'm going out on a limb saying, I don't think he ate a lot uh, at that feast. I think he's about as nervous as can be. And it says, So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? What is your wish, and what is your request? Kind of about the same things. It's a petition, your wish, your request. Even to half the kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered with his exact phrasing. Look what she said. She said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, you remember, 10,000 talents of silver that he gave. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She quoted the edict. It's exactly what the edict said. Destroy, kill, annihilate. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And this is a little bit shocking to the king. So you and your people, he does not realize she's Jewish. He doesn't even realize the edict is for the Jews. All they told him is there are a certain group of people. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, well, who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? This is when Haman gets a little bit lower in his seat. And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. You know, there's only three at dinner. So it's not like, I think she said Nathan. It sounds like Haman, but I think it's Nathan. He's down there on the third on the right. Not it's just these three. And she points to Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. What we call a uh, understatement in scripture. He was terrified before the king and queen. Well, how did the king respond to this? In verse 7, it says, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. he went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king was in a rage. He didn't do anything. He just got up and walked out. And you know he's got to be processing this thing, knowing that he's the one who sent out an edict. And in that edict, it was going to take the life of, of his wife and others and, and, and he's trying to process all of this. And while he's processing this, Haman is begging for his life. Now during that day, when people would, would lounge around, they would be on like little sofas. We'll call them, they're like pew benches here. Uh, we got a pew here. And what would happen is that she's just sort of sitting across right here and Haman is begging for his life. So he comes down and he's like right here with her. And he's saying, you got to spare my life. You got to spare my life. Well, Haman's timing has not really been good in any of this story. And while he was doing that, the king comes back in. And all of a sudden, from his vantage point, it looks like he's accosting the queen. Now, records have shown that there were king's harem protocol. In a king's harem protocol, no man could come within seven steps of a woman. All right? No man can come within seven steps of a woman in the protocol. He's on top of her. Now, that right there can get you killed. And so what happened was the king comes walking in. And when the king comes walking in, look what he says. As soon as he comes through the door, he says, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And I love this. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Listen, they loved the queen. It says she found favor with everyone. And they would recite that old song where it says that you don't tug on Superman's cape, you know, you don't spit in the wind, you don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger and you don't mess around with the queen, do, 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 on that. And as soon as he said He's doing it to the queen. They were on him like white on rice. I mean, they were boom, right on him. And they covered his face. And during those days when they covered your face, it meant that you're on for execution. You're headed out. It's over. And so what is even even better in the story is as soon as they cover his face and they're getting ready to take him out, one of the other eunuchs, a guy named Harbona, who probably is not a good friend of, of Haman's, he says, hey, just a suggestion the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, look at this, whose word saved the king, just letting you remember, the guy that saved your life, he was going to impale him. It's standing at Haman's house and it's 75 feet high. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai and then the wrath of the king abated. Wow. That's not how Haman saw that day uh, working out uh, on there. Just didn't see that at all. You say, "Well, Danny, you take from this story what, what what can we take from here that applies to us today?" Let me give you these three things. Once you write them down, real quick. Number one, God's sovereignty reminds us. God's providence, excuse me, reminds us of His sovereignty. God's providence reminds us of His sovereignty. You need to be hopeful. You need to be hopeful. Every time you think about the book of Esther, I want you to have hope and understand that God is hiding. I mean, God is, is hidden. He's not hiding. And there are things that are going on in your life. There are things that are going on in our nation. There are things going on in our world. And at times you throw your hands up and you say, where is God in all of this? Oh, he's still there. He's hovering over every single detail. And in his way, he's moving pieces into the place that are be determined in order to give him the greatest glory. And at the same time, is going to work for your good. There's a statement that we introduced, I think, in the very first sermon, which I just love. And it says, God is omnipotently present even where God is conspicuously absent. God is omnipotently present even where God is conspicuously absent. And so in your life today, some of you Feel like that God is completely absent from your life. But I want you to let you know that he is present. He's not hiding. He may be hidden at this time. But you need to understand that in the sovereignty of God, that God is working the pieces around and that he is over every situation. And because of that, you need to be hopeful. No matter what the situation is, God is sovereign. Thus, that should give us hope. Number two is this. God's power is evidence in ordinary people and events being used to accomplish his purposes. So be encouraged. I'm gonna leave it up there for a while. I want you to write this down. God's power. When people talk about the power of God, think about this. Whenever anybody says, talk about God's power, what do you think about? I think about miracles. I think about Red Sea splits. Whoa. I think about water coming out of a rock. I think about manna feeding people for forty years. I think about Jesus standing on a boat and calming a storm. Miracles—that's the power of God, and, and that's true. But I tell you what—I'm more impressed with. I'm more impressed with the way that God is so powerful that He can take ordinary lives and ordinary events uh, over all of time and move things around so it, it to where it accomplishes His purpose and gives him greater glory i mean that to me is just amazing that's amazing and so it's not just the miraculous is where god's power is is the fact that he's constantly working in ordinary people and ordinary events the pivot of the story came in chapter six verse one when it says that the king couldn't sleep he had a sleepless night And because the king had a sleepless night, he called in a servant to get the book of of reports and records to read him to kind of either help him fall asleep or just to get his mind off of something else. And guess what? This unnamed person who came in, out of all the records, of all the years, of all the days that he could have opened, he opened it up to the one day that had Mordecai's name in there. And then he read that. And when the king said, I need somebody to go honor this guy, who is first in the office? Haman. And as God is moving events, he takes a sleepless night of a king with an unnamed servant to open up a book and read about Mordecai, and then take a man who has an evil plot in mind, Haman, who's timing to be in the office at that particular time, and all of a sudden you begin to see things begin to take place. This was the beginning of the great reversal. And when you look through this book of Esther and see an orphan Jewish girl who gets promoted to queen, unbelievable. And then has this opportunity to be able to save her people through all these different events. Nothing's miraculous, nothing in this book that you can read says, wow, that's just just miraculous. No, it's ordinary. Ordinary people, ordinary events, and God is working through all of this. So what I'm telling you is to be encouraged. Now, I I know there there are times where people say you always look for your miracle, okay? And I I understand that. God is in a miracle-working business. I just don't want you to always be looking at miracles that that you overlook and miss all the ordinary things that God is doing. You know, I, I could stand here for hours and, and just begin to talk about different things in my life. Let me just give you this quick snapshot. I'm the pastor at Shades Mountain Baptist Church. I came in March of 1997. How'd that happen? <laughs> what's a what's an Auburn grad working at the phone company doing sitting here being a pastor for almost 20 years? Well, I guess you can trace it all the way back to when I decided to go to Auburn and try to figure out where I wanted to be uh, involved. And uh, God led me to to a fraternity of all things. The only reason I went to that fraternity is because they said there were a lot of believers there. And there's one guy in particular by the name of Buster Holmes. They said, this is the guy you need to meet. And I've told the story about when I walked in one day, I saw him standing over there and there was like this light about him. Was, I've never seen anybody like that. And all of a sudden I met him and I, I was engaged to, to his life and some of the other believers. And I said, this is where I think God wants me to be here in this fraternity. And then I'm, so I'm there. And after my first year then I'm getting ready to move into the fraternity house and I'm, I'm there trying to figure out where I'm going to live and, and who I'm going to room with. And I had a list of everyone I wanted the room with, and at the very bottom of the list was a guy named Mike Wayman, who they called an animal, and that I was scared of. And he walked in the exact same time I walked in, looking at a board trying to figure out which room he wants. Hey, would you want a room with me? I know oh, I'm scared to say no, so I said yes. And we looked on this map, and it's got upstairs, downstairs. He says, where do you want to live? I said, well, I kind of like downstairs. I want upstairs. I said, upstairs is where I like. Let's go. So we went to the upstairs room. We walked in. It's a bunk bed. I'm scared of heights. He says, where do you want, top or bottom? I said, I want bottom. I want bottom. Top is where I'd love to be, so I'm in the top bunk. And I'm over there, and, and I'm just trying to live out my faith. And, and I'm, I'm watching this man begin to question. And then all of a sudden, he co-ops, and he's out at the gorgeous steam plant, just watching uh, dials and, and just reading books and he begins to read some Christian books and he sends me a note and he says, I prayed to receive Christ as Savior and, uh, and I'm coming back and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a new man. And he came back and he was a new man. And, and our friendship built and has grown and even there today and, and, uh, you began to see this godly man. But, but in his family, he had a sister whose name was Peggy. And so I got to meet Peggy and Peggy at that time was dating a guy by the name of Joey. And Joey Jernigan was living in the Raleigh Villa apartments, which are just down the street over here, less than a mile away. And when I graduated, I needed a place to live. And they said, Guess what? Joey's roommate is getting married and is moving out. You could move in with him. So I go over there to see Joey to see about moving in and his roommate is there and his roommate is Tony Hebson. And Tony Hebson says, I don't know where you're going to go to church, but I want you to invite you to come to Shades Mountain Baptist Church. I said, okay, so I will do that. So I go and I visit and I come to Shades Mountain Baptist Church and as a 23 year old phone company worker, There's a 40-year-old pastor named Charles Carter that took under his arm this young kid and allowed him to be in leadership. And then as we talked about ministry, began to talk to me about what it would mean to go and become a pastor. And then who would believe that 20-something years later, I was approached to become your pastor. Now, if all of that had not happened, I would not have been on the radar to be the pastor at this church. But the reason I am is I look back through all these ordinary events and there's plenty more. But I can just see the highlights of all of these of how God took everything from meeting a Buster Holmes to a Mike to a Peggy to a Joey to a Tony to me meeting with Dr. Carter. That's where I am. It's amazing. And it's true in your life, in all of our lives. And that what God is wanting to do is just take ordinary lives, ordinary events, and if you will continue to follow Him and trust Him, you can be encouraged to know that God is a powerful God that can work through all of these things for His glory and for your good. And the very last thing is this everyone's story has a peripety. Everyone's story has a peripety. The greatest peripety in all of history. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Abby was talking about this. I mean, a peripety is a sudden reversal of events. They're there. He's hanging on a cross. He said that he was the son of God. He had all these great teachings that we're supposed to, supposed, supposed to buy into as the, those who were listening to him there 2,000 years ago. And yet he's there hanging on a cross. And so everything's done. I mean, this cannot be the son of God. He's, he's dying. This cannot be a Messiah. He was supposed to save us, but yet he's hanging on a cross. But yet, this was the pivot point of this peripety. This was the pivot point where everything began to change. And they took his body down and they placed it in a tomb, and then three days later, he was raised from the dead. And all of a sudden, when he raised from the dead, there's this sudden reversal of going, Whoa! What this means is everything that he said was true. This means that he truly is the son of God. And when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, that has to be true because he is the son of God. We've seen the cross, we've seen the empty tomb, we see the ascension to heaven, and one day he's coming back, we say, this has got to be true. I mean, the greatest peripety in all of history. But then when you think that of what that definition means, it means there's this sudden reversal there's a turning of the tables. There's something that, that happens quickly that is unexpected. Everyone's story has a peripety. What do I mean by that? Every one of us are sinners separated from God. Every one of us. We got something in common. Every one of us. We all are sinners and we're separated from God. And if we die in our sins, we'll spend eternity separated from God. He's a holy God. We're sinful people. There's no way he's going to let us into into his heaven. But what he did was he provided a sacrifice of Jesus. And then he says, if you will receive him and accept him, then your life can change forever. You could have a peripity event to where there's this sudden reversal of fortunes. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says this. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Look at that verse, God's kindness to lead you to repentance. I'm not here to scare you to say you got to choose between heaven and hell. We all have to make, make that choice. But what God does is he loves you so much, and that's why he sent his son to die for you, and that what he wants you to see is the kindness and the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, and by seeing that, he wants you to come to him, and he wants you to accept his son as your savior. But look closely at that verse. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? The fact that you're still alive is because of his forbearance and his patience. And if you do not know Christ as Savior, and you know that today, if you died today, you would spend eternity completely separated from God. I'm just going to tell you, the reason you're living and breathing right now is because of the forbearance and the patience of God because it is his desire for you to make that decision to come into his presence. And if you do that, that is a life-changing event. That is completely reversed. You are headed down this pathway, a pathway of death and destruction and separation from God, and all of a sudden, it is a huge reversal. And now, all of a sudden, you are adopted into the family of God, and you're living with a purpose, and you're living with the creator God, and, uh, and, and just everything changes. And there's this transformation begins to happen into your, into your heart. And you begin to experience the righteousness of God and what it's like to live with Christ and live for Christ. And oh, it just changes the whole thing. It's a game changer. Everyone's story has peripety, Because if you took it on the other hand, there are many in our world and some here today who you really don't have God in your life at all. But life's going good for you. Things are good. You Got a good house. Got a good job. Things are going well. It's like your health is good. And uh, you're going to keep traveling that path. But in an instant, that can all change. I mean, life is just like a blade of grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. And it can change in an instant. And when that changes in an instant, then your world is just like Haman's. It doesn't get much better. He's at the peak. And then within a matter of hours, this great reversal took place. And see, it will happen because every one of us is going to die. We're we're, we're all going to face eternity. And when that happens, that's when the great reversal happens. And those who do not know Christ as Savior... It is not like they go into a waiting tank and a holding cell to where God begins to think about the good and the bad and weigh this and that. No, it's only one thing. Have you accepted Christ or have you rejected Christ? And if you accepted Christ, part of his family. You rejected Christ, you said, I want to take my chances. And God's going to say, I'm perfect, I'm holy. How are you doing over here? Here's all your sins, all the things you've done. There's no way I can let you into my heaven. You have to be separated from me for eternity. That's a huge reversal, and it's a reversal that will last for eternity. So my prayer and my hope for you is that if you being here today is an ordinary event, listening to an ordinary preacher share with you a message that is written in a book of things that took place about 2,000 years ago that will affect you for eternity, it's not by accident that you're here. It's not by accident that you're hearing this message. And it is because of the kindness and the forbearance of God. Because he desires to adopt you into his family. He desires to build a relationship with you. And you can make that change today. Today. At the end of this service, I'm going to wrap this sermon up right now. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And what a prayer is, is just you speaking your heart to God and saying, God, I want to accept that gift. And you can ask him to come into your heart today. And all of a sudden, this huge reversal is going to take place. The tables are turned on sin and Satan, and you can become a part of God's family. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience and for your love, and for your great desire that all would come to know you as Lord and Savior. And Father, I want to pray for those today who do not know you, but yet in hearing this message and understanding that there is a reason why they are here today, and that is to enter in this relationship with you. And if they're serious about this, Lord, I pray that you would hear their prayer as they ask you to come into their heart. And so if it's your desire to pray this today, just repeat after me in your heart, not out loud, but just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I am separated from you. But I also know that you died on the cross for my sins. And were raised three days later, giving me the hope of eternal life. I repent of my sins. I ask you to come into my life to be the leader and to be the boss of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. And Lord, help me to take the next steps in this new relationship to bring honor and glory to you. Amen.